Good morning. We're so glad that you're here. We certainly hope that you had a blessed Easter with your family, uh, celebrating uh, the resurrection of our Lord. Well, uh, Tuesday night, about 10 o'clock, the pastor, uh, Sanders, he called down to the bullpen. He, uh, he, uh, he said, I'm feeling so bad, and you guys know how he loves to study. Now, he can parse it out. He said, I'm feeling so bad, I can't study. And, uh, and so he called to the bullpen, and so you're stuck with uh, the relief pitcher uh, this morning on short preparation. So uh, we want to look at 2 Samuel 20 and 21. Uh, I'm not going to read a lot of this, uh, and I'll just make notes of it, but I want to just walk us through uh, eradicating rebellion and restoring shalom, restoring the Lord's peace in, in His kingdom. But before we jump into this, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you that you have spoken in your word and you've not kept silent. Lord, would you speak to us now, every single man in this room, your unchanging, eternal, and profitable word, and give us each grace to respond as we ought, with faith, with understanding, and most of all, Lord, with obedience. Speak to us, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thought it would be uh, maybe helpful to sort of give you a, sort of a telescopic view again of the whole book of, of 2 Samuel. Uh, I really like uh, uh, one of the books I have is called Talk Through the Bible. And one of the things it does very well is sort of gives you sort of the big picture. I don't know about you, but uh, many of you are problem solvers. You're analytical, and we can sort of dive into the details, and we can forget sort of the big picture. So if, if here, uh, as the overview of 2 Samuel, you know, sort of, uh, sort of bit, three big broad out, uh, statements of the outline of the book. First through chapters 1 to 10, you've got the triumphs, the triumphs of David. Uh, all of his, uh, in chapters 1 to 5, you've got his political triumphs and how he becomes king. And then uh, chapters 5 to 7, you've got his spiritual triumphs. And then chapters 8 to 10, you've got his military triumph. So you've got this, this king doing great exploits. Uh, the kingdom of Israel uh, sort of comes to a zenith of prosperity under the reign of this uh, divinely anointed king. But everything, as you've studied, everything changes in chapter 11. You have the transgressions of, of King David. First of all, the sin of adultery in verses 1 to 5 with Bathsheba, and then his uh, accomplice in murder in uh, chapter 11, 6 through 27, with Uriah the Hittite, a very devoted uh, soldier in David's army. And then what you end up, uh, what happens here, and uh, one of my favorite seminary professors used to, he always used to say, sin, sin is pleasurable. For a season. And he says this, first of all, you do sin, and then second of all, sin does you. It begins to unravel and to sort of disintegrate shalom, disintegrate the life that God intended for us to live. And so you begin to see from chapters 12 through 24, the end of this book, you begin to see the disintegration, the troubles 
in, first of all, in David's family uh, with Amnon and Absalom and Tamar and just uh, the, the tremendous fractures that come there in his family in chapters 12 and 13. And then all the troubles and disintegration and rebellion in David's kingdom. So this is sort of where we are today. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about uh, my grandmama Rosie. I grew up in a little town sort of like Mayberry. In fact, I grew up in the state of North Carolina. Uh, One stoplight, front and back street. I can just never get over how whatever I tended to do, whatever sin I committed in, in the dark place, that grandmama and mama could find out about it. I don't know if it was just written on my forehead or what, but they always kept telling me this, and then I finally figured out as a preacher, you know, this stuff's actually in the Bible. Be sure, son, your sins will find you out. What you do in the secret place, I'm just praying for a little birdie to whisper it to me right here in my ear. And I can just remember, man, how did they find out again? It's always in trouble as a kid. And uh, basically what you have here with King David, his sins are finding him out. And you can kind of just walk through, I mean, what happens, the, the, the consequences of his sin, the death of, of the child with Bathsheba, the rape of his daughter, the murders of Amnon and Absalom, his sons, and the slaying coming up here in chapter 20 of uh, his nephew Amasa. Well, one of the things I hope that we will... We will do, because this is really a lot of sad stuff. (laughs) Uh, The rebellion and, and and the covenant promises that are being broken in these next two chapters. And one of the things that we need to do is we need to sort of marinate in the sadness and, and learn. And I think one of the things I guess one, I would hope that you would learn and you would take away. And, and what I want to take away from this, Lord, I don't have the hatred for my sin that I need in my life. All the times that I have spurned you, that I've not wanted the Lord's anointed to rule over me. I've wanted to be my own boss. I wanted to do it my way. And like David, it made a mess of things. The times when I have made promises to people and have not fulfilled those promises. And one of the things you're going to take away from this chapter is that the Lord takes very seriously when his people break their, their covenant promises. So uh, t- today, let's, um, uh, let's get a lot of guidance here. And I guess this will be one of my main things, is just to be thinking about just personally. You know, it's easy to always point the finger. Man, these, these, these folks were a bunch of idiots. You know, Sheba and uh, uh, Joab. I mean, Joab was a treacherous, murderous monster of a man. And you, and you just kind of point your finger and say, you know what? Those, the impulses that led these men to do all this heinous crimes and sin, that, those same impulses live within me. And here's how I used to tell my children. I, I'm not a child abuser or anything like that, but I used, to, I used to visit with my children when they were little and growing up. I said, son, sweetie, I'm praying for the Lord to protect you, protect me or to protect you from your daddy. I'm praying for the Lord to protect you from your father because lurking within me is a great capacity to sin against you. And I know when I'm on top of my game as a daddy, I'm going to be an imperfect, shattered, 
image of your perfect heavenly father and I want it to be the reflex of your heart to put your trust in him because you've seen an inkling of his heart in the life of your earthly daddy. So this morning, let's, let's look into the, into the text and just sort of walk through uh, just a basic outline of this passage. Well, first of all, we're going to see uh, sort of the main idea that uh, a peaceable kingdom is restored to the Lord's anointed in spite of pervasive. I mean, we're talking pervasive rebellion. And you see this in, in chapter 20. So, uh, first of all, you have uh, this, uh, this man from uh, the north, uh, a man named Sheba, uh, the son of Belkri, who is a Benjamite, uh, verse 1 tells us. Now, who else is from ben- the, the tribe of Benjamin? Saul, King Saul. And so you can see this man's loyalties are still with uh, the old king. And he blows the trumpet. He says, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Verse 2, so all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Belchri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So what you have here, you have... uh, uh, a man saying, hey, we don't want the Lord's anointed. We don't want King David to rule over us. You have the seeds coming of this uh, division of the kingdom between Israel in the north and Judah to the south. So you've got uh, the rebellion from the outside. And one of the things, I guess, when I say pervasive rebellion, what I want you to see is that not only do we have rebellion uh, on the outside of, of David's regime and his, his leadership and his kingdom from uh, this man named Sheba, a, a worthless man, the text said, a man whose sort of heart was bent toward rebellion. But what you're going to see is you've got, in many ways, I, 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 I call it double rebellion. The kingdom continues in spite of double rebellion. But really, in many ways, it's, it's triple rebellion. Because what you see is you've got rebellion on the outside. You've got rebellion on the inside. You've got one of uh, the old generals, Joab, who rebels against the, the Lord's anointed's authority, King David's authority, but also you've got rebellion within. And this is what I want you to see as you look into verse 3, uh, when you see uh, this, this verse, it just seems in some ways out of place in, in this whole narrative. It says, David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. Now, immediately, this ought to sort of draw you back to uh, 2 Samuel 12 when uh, the Lord basically tells David what's going to happen. You know, I'm going to raise up evil against you from within your own household. And what ends up happening with Absalom? Absalom, and, and basically to defy the, the David's authority, ends up sleeping out in the open, remember, under the tent, 2 Samuel 16. 20 to 22, and basically defiles these women, pollutes the land uh, with his uh, adultery. And uh, one of the things I I guess I want you to take from this, just to be practical, some of you, in fact, I was visiting with a man not too long ago whose father was a minister, and he was recounting uh, some of the sins of his father's father to him, and just how how the difficulty he has in in entrusting the Lord because 
of the crises that had been perpetrated in his life through the sins of his father. And many of you, maybe here, know the, 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 the existence of, of, of these concubines here who are now confined to a house basically as prisoners to a life of misery and isolation simply because of the sins and the rebellion of others, namely King David. And so you see, that's why I call it the triple rebellion, the, the rebellion that is even within in David's own heart. And my friends, if you're here today, and, and one of the things I always try to get people to think about, today, do you view yourself as someone who is more sinned against, kind of the victim, someone who's been victimized by the sins, the gross and heinous sins of others, or do you view yourself as sinner? And one of the things I'm always trying to do when I come alongside, especially with couples in marriage, is to help them come to a place where, wait a minute, the problem in my marriage is me, my selfishness, my sin. I have the log in my eye. My spouse has the speck in her eye. Why is that the case? Because my sin is ultimately against a perfectly holy God. It's big, and it needs to be big from my perspective. And as I, as I cultivate that, one of the things that enables me to do is to release other people from the, the, the ways that they've sinned against me. And it enables me to move out in humility toward other people rather than always making others pay for the ways that they have sinned against me. So you have these, you've got Sheba's rebellion in verses 1 and 2. Now you have these sad women... Uh, due to David's own rebellion. And then, uh, to, then it kind of tr- to triple the deal, uh, uh, the third thing you have in, in verses 4 to 13, you've got this uh, tremendous act of treachery on the part of Joab toward his cousin. Uh, you know, Amasa is the man we meet now uh, because of this threat of rebellion in the kingdom. Uh, David calls Amasa to uh, gather the men of Judah up to go and pursue Sheba and sort of squelch the rebellion. And verse 5, he delays uh, beyond the set time. Uh, he's sort of uh, like uh, Longstreet, if you know anything about the Battle of Gettysburg, and uh, he's sort of dragging his feet. And, uh, and so David, David basically appoints another uh, gen- one of his generals, Abishag, uh, Abishai to uh, go and uh, pursue Sheba. And so on their way, um, Abishai sort of meets up with uh, Joab, and you have this encounter with Joab and Amasa, and, he, uh, he, and Joab r- reaches out to, uh, to welcome, to uh, greet Amasa, and he has the, the dagger, and he just sort of slams the dagger into Amasa, and he um, brutally murders uh, the appointed uh, general of David's army, basically because of just sheer envy, his, his ruthlessness. He was a self-serving man, and he rebels against the Lord's anointed. Joab does and kills Joab, and it says in verse 10, so Joab struck Amasa uh, with the dagger in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow and he died. Amasa died. 
And so uh, as, as we go on, you know, they begin to uh, pursue uh, uh, Sheba, who has just, who, who's basically his attempt at succession from King David is starting to fail. And so he's fleeing to the far north in Israel. And, uh, and basically, amidst all this craziness of these men, a wise woman, we don't even know her name, a wise woman shows up in, in verses 14, uh, uh, a woman of uh, Abel of Beth Makkah, uh, the city, and she basically intercedes, uh, and she basically, uh, her wisdom and her counsel ends up eradicating uh, the rebellion of Sheba from David's kingdom. So you see this in verses 14 to 22. Verse 16, she says, it's called a wise woman called from the city to Joab, and she said, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. He came near, and the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And this has a bit of irony in it when Joab answers, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up and destroy. That's all, all Joab's been doing, is swallowing up and destroying people's lives for his self-serving purposes. That is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Belchri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him a loan, and I will withdraw from the city. So basically, the woman puts together a plan to deliver Sheba uh, into their hands and to spare her city. And so basically, they end up returning home to Jerusalem. And then you have here in the very end of uh, chapter 20, is you've got just sort of uh, the officers, if you will, the cabinet of King David that continues to serve him. And one of the things that you'll note here, this man Joab, one of the things that David's adultery and his accomplice to murder did, it began to erode King David's ability to check the other leaders in his, in his administration. And so he could not say anything to his sons. He couldn't say anything to Joab. So Joab comes back and he now has, due to his own selfish uh, attempts, has become again the general of the army of uh, King David. So you, you've got this rebellion. And I was, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking back to my own life and... Uh, as I think I've told you before, the times I've been here, when I was a young man, I was a religious hellion. I was religious when I was on the free throw line and the game was on the line. I was a praying man. Lord, just help this free throw go in and I promise you, I'll serve you. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll even be a missionary to Timbuktu, Africa, wherever that is. Just let, just let this ball go in the hoop and let us win this game. But I always was resisting him, what C.S. Lewis calls the transcendental interferer. I was always stiff-arming, always wanting to kind of live life my own way, and uh, I can remember running fast and furious away from the Lord, uh, going to a place called the beer-drinking capital of the world. That's where I went to college. 
And, uh, you know, just looking forward to the fast life, to living, being out from under authority. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of places in the Bible that I love and cherish. But there's, there's one scripture that I have been tempted at times to want to put the scissors to in the Bible. And then I go read Revelation 22 and I put my scissors back in the drawer. Submit to your bosses, submit, submit to your masters, and here comes the part, even when they seem unreasonable to you, that every authority is divinely ordained. And I can remember one of the first times that I really blew this as a young man. I had a boss I worked at a place called White Lake, North Carolina. It's a beautiful spring-fed lake, and we used to do tournament water skiing and all this stuff. And, uh, but I, one of the ways I made a little bit of money, and, and my parents wanted me to work for the public just to give me a good training and education, I worked at Dairy Queen. You, ever, you guys ever been to Dairy Queen? Thank the Lord I didn't work there when they, when they had blizzards. Because uh, I would be as big as a barn. I still love a strawberry nut Sunday, man. I tell you what, I can knock them down. Well, I had a difficult boss. I mean a difficult boss. One of the things we employees decided, Labor Day weekend is a big, big weekend. The boss was raking the money in hand over fist on Labor Day weekend. And we had just had it up to here. You know what us 18-year-old kids decided to do? We walked out. At noon on Labor Day, everybody was walking out of the Dairy Queen. We thought we were hot stuff. We thought we were, you know, hey, we're going to show him who's the, who's the boss. Well, a number of months later, I met the Lord, and I was converted and I came to faith in Jesus, and the Lord began to re, uh, rearrange some things in my life. And, and I began to think back to my, some of the things of ways that I had used people and sinned against people, the way that I had, in this case, sinned against my boss. And, and one of the things I did the next summer is I went back to him. There was really uh, in no way, uh, you know, a freshman college student could, could be, do restitution and pay him back. I probably should have in some ways, but I ended up going back and, and wanting to make right that wrong and apologizing and say, you know, uh, Mr. Wommel, it was wrong of us. One of the things I do as a pastor, I help men, especially in their marriages, learn how to make an apology and learn how to receive an apology. Mr. Wommel, it was absolutely wrong for us to walk out on you and to hurt your business on one of the busiest weekends of the summer. It was wrong of us. I'm sorry. Words are, are, are futile, a bit really, at this point, but I'm sorry, and I want to ask you to forgive me. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And at that moment, men, when someone comes to make an apology to you like that, it's the moment of truth. What do generally people say at that point? Oh, Matt, don't worry about it. It was nothing. Yes, it was something. A cross was raised to prove to all of us that the, the forgiveness is not cheap and easy business. And at those moments, we need to, yes, 
I forgive you. Your apology is accepted. But most of all, the Lord forgives you. And if he forgives you, how can I make you pay for the ways that you've sinned against me? He hasn't made me pay. And this is how we model the gospel with one another. Let me just encourage you. Amidst all this rebellion, you know, this triple rebellion and, and, and eradicating this rebellion in the kingdom of the Lord's anointed, thank goodness we don't meet the end of Sheba. The Lord does not make us pay. And this is what we're going to see in the next chapter. There's an atonement. Jesus Christ dies in our place. The innocent one is put in the place of the traitors so that we might go free, that we might be forgiven. And my friends, think about those times. Let, when you go back to your own life and you look at your own patterns of relating and your own rebellion against the Lord and His anointed, King Jesus, let that not cause you to wallow in guilt and shame. Let it cause you to run to Jesus to preach the gospel to your heart again as a believer. And uh, it, it is just a beautiful thing. And I'll just tell you in the words of Martin Luther, if you're a Christian here today, if you're someone who's sort of investigating the gospel, you never get over your need of the gospel. And that Martin Luther will tell all of us today, if we don't beat the gospel incessantly into our heads, that I am righteous, I am forgiven, I'm accepted because of what Christ has done for me. He said, if we don't beat it incessantly into our heads, we will be buffeted by fears and depression. Your mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual health is dependent on this discipline of proclaiming the gospel, becoming a gospel preacher to nobody else but your own heart. The gospel is for believers. You never get over your need for the gospel. Well, in chapter 21, we see restoring God's shalom, God's peace, life as it was meant to be, a flourishing in, in the kingdom of the Lord's anointed. In uh, verses tw- 1 to 14, the king intervenes. Uh, king David intervenes to restore shalom. So what you have in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 21, you've got basically a, a promise is broken. A, a, a covenant promise is broken by a murderous king. And that king would be King Saul. So in verse, verse 1, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, David sought... For three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So here we have uh, uh, one of the things, you'll have to go back a little bit in history. Who are these Gibeonites? These Gibeonites, they're not the people of Israel or Judah. Uh, They were people of the land of Canaan and they, they tricked Joshua 
Back in Joshua chapter 9, they said that we're people who live far off. Actually, they live right in the middle of, of the promised land. And they made uh, basically what happened. Uh, the, people, the people of God uh, made a rash covenant, uh, a rash oath with these people that they would spare them, that they would allow them to live. And uh, basically, uh, if you go and read Joshua chapter 9, you'll see where basically it says, let the, if we do not fulfill uh, our covenant, let the wrath, of, the wrath of the Lord be upon us. And so it's very strong language, Joshua 9, verses 15 and 19. And what they do, if you remember the old covenants where they will cut the, the carcasses of the animals in half and lay them open, and they'll walk through. It's kind of a, a strange custom, but when you're making a, a, a covenant with someone, and it says, let the same thing happen to me if I do not keep up my end of the bargain, my end of the covenant. And so... Uh, Basically, what happens, King Saul, uh, in his zeal, uh, he basically wants to destroy the Gibeonites, and he violates this covenant that Joshua and the others made. And so, what ends up happening, the curse of the Lord is on the land. And basically, it comes in the form of a famine. And we see one of the curses of the covenant from Deuteronomy 28, uh, verses 23 and 24. Well, there's a tremendous cost to uh, breaking a promise. And uh, why is this? Because the Lord attaches his reputation to the promises that his people make. And so this is why the Lord takes very seriously when we break our promises. And one of the things that's so interesting as a pastor is oftentimes we'll be walking with couples that have been uh, in the Lord's house, and the Lord's church for years, and, and um, all of a sudden they come to a place where they're, uh, well, I'm not getting much out of my marriage, my, my wife is not meeting my needs, and here comes a lie from the pit of hell, and all of us at times are, are tempted to believe it, and here it comes. This is what Steve Brown would say, it smells like smoke, <laughs> and it is, you can be sure it's from the pit of hell. Here come some words. Have you ever said these words? Man, I've said these words more times than I care to remember. I deserve better than this. Uh-oh. 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 Friends, what do we deserve? Jonathan Edwards was meeting with a man, you know, the man who preached a sermon at a friend's church, not his own church, by the way, sinners in the hands of an angry God, um, because he had such a beautiful view of the love of God. He wanted sinners to be rescued from the wrath of God. And my friends, one of the things that this man told Jonathan Edwards, he said, you know what, I'm such a filthy, rotten scoundrel of a sinner, I deserve to be in the rung of hell, the the lowest rung of hell. Jonathan Edwards looked at the man and he said, my, you have a high esteem of yourself. Um, the truth is, that word deserve shouldn't be in any sentence with your or my name on it. I don't even deserve the bottom rung. But one of the things that you see again and again is that the Lord in his mercy, he reaches down. To rebels like us, when the people like us who break our promises, 
And he never, all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And he reaches down and he woos us back to himself. Well, one of the things we see here is uh, after this promise is broken by a murderous king, God gives a merciful answer. A merciful answer is given to an interceding king. David begins to wonder, three years with a famine, no rain, no crops, devastation in an agricultural economy. And God in his mercy begins to hear the prayer of, of, of David. And so what ends up happening, let's see here, am I right here? He gives this, uh, this merciful answer to, to David as he intercedes. And one of the things I have here in, in 2A point B that I want you to see is God extends his mercy. He extends his mercy to us when he does not keep us in the dark. As I was thinking about this, I, I was thinking of the old song, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to the Lord in prayer. You wonder, how, how could, could we have shortened this famine uh, with a little bit more intentionality and in seeking the Lord, inquiring of the Lord? But here, even after three years, the Lord in his mercy answers the interceding king, David, and he lets him know why there's a famine in the land because of the blood guilt of King Saul and the way he dealt with the Gibeonites. But God also extends his mercy to us when he makes our guilt clear. Friends, one of the things that happens, when you think about your own life and the ways that you've, you've struggled with rebelling against the Lord's authority, the ways that you and I have not kept our promises that we've made, when the Spirit of God convicts you about those things, run to Jesus. When he convicts you about those things, Go to others. Humble yourself. It is such a liberating experience. I can't tell you what a, a burden was lifted off of my shoulders when I took the simple step of obedience and went to my former boss and endeavored to make things right with him. Where is it with you today? Are there any, any ways that you need to make amends? Any, any, any relationship where you're out of accord? where there's not peace, there's not shalom. Uh, what is it that God's calling you to do? What simple act of obedience where you have to take the step down in humility to make things right, to restore shalom, things and relationships the way that they're meant to be, where there's a flourishing. Well, God mercifully answers the interceding king. And then you have in verses 3 to nine, you have a part of the story, you know, you, you scratch your head, say, man, I cannot believe this stuff is in the Bible. Some people will say, all of this blood, I mean, even as we sang, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Says, Can't we get a kinder, gentler faith? Do we have to talk about the blood all the time? Well, Hebrews 9.22 will remind you that without the shedding of blood, there is what? There is no forgiveness of sins. And so one of the things we do, and we ought to let this gory and gruesome, uh, gruesome atonement made for the king's sins in verses 3 to 9, 
Let it lead us, let it lead us forward to another atonement, to another brutal uh, crucifixion that's going to come for us. Well, you, you see here that basically what happens, King David appeals to the Gibeonites, say, what do we need to do to, uh, to basically propitiate or to satisfy you uh, in terms of this great and, hein- and heinous crime that's been perpetrated against you? So the Gibeonites and David talk in verses 4 and then in verse 5, and, and listen to what they say to the king. The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we would have no place in all the kingdom of Israel. Let that man, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And get this, what King David does. The king said, I will give them. So right here, you've got uh, seven men. You've got two sons by one of Saul's concubines, And then you've got five grandsons of King Saul that are basically slain uh, because of the blood guilt of their father and grandfather. And you say, man, what is up with this? What is up with this? And I've got a few notes here, you know, a couple of scriptures. Numbers 35, 33. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So basically, these uh, seven men, seven obviously uh, the number of completion, uh, it, these seven men are given to the Gibeonites. And you say, this is sort of, this seems very pagan. You know, when I was reading this, I was thinking, my, I've got some kids that live in Peru, in a place called Trujillo, Peru, and there's this temple there. And one of the things you see in these ancient cultures, like the Inca culture, there, there is a, this whole idea of placating these wrathful, capricious gods by human sacrifice. And you kind of wonder, okay, is this something like this going on in this text? And, uh, and one of the things I think that you, you find is that as you kind of get into this, that um, you, you wonder, okay, is this, is this practice, is what King David approved here, does this violate the word of God? You go back to, I've got Deuteronomy 24, verse 16 here, where it says this, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And so you're looking at this and saying, man, is God's word contradicting itself here? Well, one of the things it seems to me, and there are, there are complications abound on all sides here on this issue, that uh, this, this incident here does not violate Deuteronomy 24 that really tends to regulate individual crimes, uh, criminal cases. But uh, Saul is act, acted here as king, as a represent, representative for, for the part of the nation. And so this is really a national sin, and there's a biblical pattern of the sons of the fathers having to suffer for, for the, the sins of their fathers, uh, especially those who are in positions of leadership and authority. And there's a number of passages I could give you on that. But let me, um, let me just say this. Can I just speak uh, kind of, th- this is a sad affair right here. But let me just say something at this point. If you go to the, to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and you read Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, it says something that, that alarms people at times. When people get hold of this, man, it just, 
it can really worry people. The sins of the fathers are visited on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But, the Lord says, I show steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who keep my commands. What is this notion of the sins of the fathers being visited on the successive generations? Am I somehow paying now for my granddaddy's sins? Well, one of the things I've tried to do is in this whole thing of the generational sins is rather than getting perplexed and all bent out of shape out of what we don't understand, one of the things I always try to do is to bring my friends back to how do we, uh, well, let me just use kudzu. Any of you guys have farms? You, you've got kudzu you, you're dealing with? I used to live in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Man, uh, the lady who used to own our land, she brought kudzu in to feed her pigs and goats, but then the farm left, and man, kudzu took over. The way that you cut the kudzu of sin in your own heart and the generational sins of your fathers is through repentance and faith. Martin Luther said when he nailed the 95 Theses up on the door of the Wittenberg Church that when Jesus Christ came proclaiming, repent and believe the gospel, he meant that every single day in the life of a Christian was to be one of repentance. So today, how do I grow in Christ? How do I solve every problem that comes into my life as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a businessman? It is through repenting. I get the, get the clippers out and start cutting the kudzu of sin off of my heart. I repent and I believe and rest in the Lord again and again and again. And uh, this is very, very important. In the discussion questions, I think I have something on that. But this gruesome atonement that is made, that it ends up basically causing the famine, causing the famine to end... Is, um, is pointing forward, is foreshadowing another atonement that would come, a complete, a one and final sacrifice for sin. And here's what, uh, I, I've got a point here of just a simple application. I mean, this is not rocket science. This is about the only thing I could think of as I was wa- walking through this part of the text. Atonement is a ghastly, gruesome, gory, bloody, messy affair. And it should scandalize us. And friends, we, we wear the crosses around our neck and, and we can tend to sort of uh, sanitize the, the, the death of our Lord. And this should remind us, all parts of the Old Testament, according to, to Luke's gospel on the walk to Emmaus, is about one subject, the sufferings of Jesus Christ and the glories to follow of His kingdom. So even here, this is pointing forward to to the Lord. And we should be horrified. We should be scandalized. Especially these, These men were guilty. I deserve to die not only for my own sin, but the sins of my fathers. But I get life because of the one who... Uh, who rescued me from danger by interposing his precious blood. And so we run to the Lord uh, and we, I guess I love the whole idea. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, if you've got kids, certainly you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, Edmund, 
you know, Edmund who, who, who gets uh, taken with a Turkish delight from the white witch who has made Narnia is, is always winter and never Christmas in the land of Narnia. And, uh, and then basically what happens, Aslan, the Christ figure, the, the, the lion comes and he is slain by the white witch on the stone table uh, to rescue the traitor. And my favorite part of that story is you've got a traitor, a one who succumbed to his lust. And at the end of the story, where is he? His, his name is called Edmund the Just, and he's reigning with Aslan. He's reigning with the king at Caer Paravel. Can you think of the times that you've betrayed your loyalty to King Jesus? When you've rebelled, when you've broken your promises. My friends, when you can just sort of get a wash in guilt and shame about that, look to the future. Look who will reign. In fact, we know this from the book of Revelation. We're going to reign with Christ. We're we're heirs of his kingdom. And today you need to hear again the words of Hebrews 2. Right now I'm helping a, uh, a, a young girl... A young girl I watched grow up uh, in another city who has gotten pregnant as a freshman in college. And she's dealing with all manner of shame as she's decided to keep the child and, uh, and just rack with shame. And one of the things I want her to hear, that I want you to hear today, this is Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the elder brother who at the cost of his own body, his own life, rescued you. He is not ashamed to call you his brother. Do you know that today? Is that sort of pulsating in your heart? Do you have a sense of the Father's love, of his delighting in you, rejoicing over you with singing? That's not the notion I grew up uh, uh, believing about the Lord. And I hope that you will sense that today in your heart. He loves me. His wrath toward me has been propitiated. It's been satisfied till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied because every sin, every sin was on Jesus laid. So this is the message of the gospel. Verse, uh, verse 7, we, we see this incident again of uh, Mephibosheth. You remember him from 2 Samuel chapter 9, the crippled, uh, the crippled son well, what, in, what David ends up doing, we see the contrast here between Saul and David. David keeps his promise. So we have a promise kept by a devoted king in verse 7, contrary to a promise broken by a murderous king. And so D- David extends safety to Jonathan's son. He does not deliver him up uh, to this death that he deserves. And right here we see David is foreshadowing the one and final and perfect Davidic king who not ruthlessly but who relentlessly commits himself to our eternal safety even to his own demise. My friends today, I hope you see this. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday here in one of our services because your Lord loves you. He has spread a feast for you just like King David did for Mephibosheth. You're always welcome and, and you, you have a place to stay in the Lord's house, and you're always welcome at the king's table. You have His banqueting table uh, over me is love. So this is true of us with the Lord, the promise kept by a devoted king. 
And, and number five, you've got the sad, unceasing vigil. Vigil of a loving mother. In verses 10 to 14, you've, you've got one of the concubines of uh, King Saul, Rispa. She guards uh, uh, the, the, the dead bodies of her two sons um, who, are, who were hung there. And, and really, in some ways, I was thinking about this. This is a little bit of kind of reading into this. But as I read through this passage, one of the things that made me think of, I, th- I was thinking to the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you know, Mel Gibson's movie, and just the, the, the vigil, the unceasing vigil of the mother of Jesus at the foot of the cross and just the sorrows that she endured. And um, one of the things that happens here from this mother, um, the, the, the wrath is turned away, rain begins to fall uh, from heaven on the land of Israel. Uh, David gives an honorable burial for Saul and his, and, and his sons and grandsons. And after that, it says in verse 14, verse 14b, that God responded to the plea for the land. His wrath was assuaged and satisfied, and, um, and rain came. Here's a, just a couple of points of application here of this, of this story. Guys, this is incredibly sad. There's just no other way around it, and it's so easy to want to go, okay, what do I need to do based upon what we've read? And I like uh, what Dale Davis says in his commentary. He says, we just need to marinate in the sadness of the story, for there's goodness and sadness. I don't know about you, but I find that in the church of Jesus today, we have a hard time singing the sad songs, the laments. We want to be happy. We want to sing the happy songs. But listen to what Ecclesiastes tells us here. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. One of the things that the sadness of this story ought to do as we sort of enter into that sadness, it it will bring us joy as we contemplate another propitiation, another death. The massive cost it it, it was to the Lord to rescue covenant breakers like us. All the ways that we've broken our promises and, and we've not fulfilled our word. Jesus Christ was lifted on a cross. And we know this from 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So friends, if you have a notion in your heart of an angry God, you haven't come to yet to understand the notion of propitiation. His wrath has been satisfied. Our sin, when we break our promises, it arouses the just and righteous anger of God, His righteous indignation. But it is satisfied fully and completely at the cross of Jesus. And today, you need to preach the gospel to your heart. And I would suggest one place to start, my place I've always used to try to shepherd my children's heart with the gospel, thereby shepherding my own heart, is 1 Peter 2.24. Every sin of lust every sin of pride, every sin of anger, every every sin of critical speech. 
Jesus himself bore all, not some, all of your sins in his body when he died on the tree at Calvary. Friends, that is good news. That ought to make you get up on your tiptoes and become Pentecostal and get your hands up because you have a God who has done that for you. It cost him immensely. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remind ourselves of what it cost the Lord to love us and to redeem us. Well, uh, in the last part of this chapter, verses 15 to 22, God intervenes to restore shalom. He restores shalom by four things, and I'll just walk through these quickly. We need to wrap this up. By preserving the life of the king in verses 15 and 17, David is getting older. He's weary in the midst of the battle, and his life is almost taken until his men, uh, basically Abishai, saves his life. And, uh, and, and they basically forbid David from going out to battle in his older age. And he says, shall, shall you, no, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And I want just to encourage you, there's a number of you that are here that are in your sunset years. And you may not have the strength and the physical fortitude that you used to have. But my friends, the Lord is calling you the the lamp of Israel. You're the fathers in Israel. And you are bearing the light. Some of the things that you men do to serve Christ, the ways that you uh, sacrifice and give of your time and your resources to further the kingdom, you are the lamp of God's people. You're the light of God's people, just like King David was. Preserving the life of the king. Number two, uh, honoring or prospering the servants of the king. You've got four of these of David's servants mentioned here that deal with the giants uh, uh, and slay those giants. Uh, thirdly, uh, God intervenes to restore shalom by fulfilling the promises of his word. None of God's promises ever fail. He, ful- he fulfills the promises of his word. He's going to... God's promises to prove the land of the Rephaim, the giants will be given to the descendants of Abraham. What the Lord promises at the first, he brings to fulfillment at the last. By the hand of David, I will save my people from the land of the Philistines and from the hand of all of their enemies. And lastly, the Lord intervenes to restore shalom by silencing the enemies of his people. Friends, one of the things, and you'll see what I've got here at the end, I've got something called a garland method of prayer. And I use this in every passage that I study. In my devotional time, it's a wedding of Martin Luther to a man named Tim Keller. One of the things you want to, I want to close with this. We all need a king. We need a king greater than David that will rescue us and defend us against all of his and our enemies. And we have that in the Lord Jesus Christ. So... Let's uh, go forth to serve the Lord today. Let me pray for us. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come, King Jesus, and would you subdue our restless, rebellious hearts. Forgive us, Lord, for all the ways that we have broken our own vows and promises and not kept our, our word. Thank you that we are covered in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you that Jesus comes today to rule and defend us against all of 
your enemies and our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So come, King Jesus. Come and rule and reign in our hearts and our lives today, we pray in your name. Amen.